I want to start with a question. I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and talk to them. I just want you to shout out your responses. Uh, what do you think of when you hear the word church? In a word or a phrase, what do you think of? Family. Family? People? People? Community? Community? Friends. Friends? Anything else? Anyone else? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy? Yeah, that's fair. Sin. Sin? Mm -hmm. Stuffy? Stuffy? <laughs> Gathering? Gathering? Guilt? Guilt? Cathedral. <coughs> Temporary. Temporary. Love. It's good. So in, our, in the first month of our existence as a new church, we've been going through a series uh, that delves into our calling, which is bound up in our name, Christ City Church. The last couple weeks, Matthew talked about our calling to Christ, uh, whose life, death, and resurrection are the center point of our lives and our life together, and our calling to the city, how place matters, and what it means for us to be here in D.C. And this week I'm going to talk about the last part. What, what we are called to the church. We're called to the church. And this is how we explain it. You can read this. This is up on our website that you can read. Church isn't a building, an organization, or an institution. And church isn't a place for the perfect or pristine. Church is for the hungry, hurting, and hopeful. Church is a community of people who are ordering their lives around Jesus, rooted in a place coming together to remember the promises of God and the work of Christ and walking together as followers of Jesus. Our church is a collective of storytellers sharing the greatest story of all in a thousand ways to remind one another when we forget and to invite others who haven't heard. We are people gathering to remember and then scattering to tell the gospel of Christ Jesus. A recent survey asked respondents how important it was to attend church and on average, the uh, responses were actually fairly even. About a third were neutral, a third said it was very important to attend, and a third said it was not at all important. For younger folks, the survey found, you may not be surprised by this, the shift was toward not at all. And I'm sure we've heard of the growing spiritual but not religious crowd, or the I find it easier to follow Jesus on my own crowd, and maybe that's you. And if you're here today, thank you for coming. I want to acknowledge that we all come with preconceived notions about church. We come with our own definitions of church. We come with our own baggage and our own scars. There were words or phrases that came to mind that you did not want to shout out. And whether that came from our church or from other churches, uh, I want to acknowledge that. And to thank you for being here. As Matthew and I were preparing for how to talk about church, we both came to the same passage. And it's in 1 Peter 2. And that's the lens I'm going to be looking through this morning. And so I would like to ask you to stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's Word. Peter writes, As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And skipping down to verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. 
So there are three things I want to draw out from this passage today, but let me provide a little background first. Um, This passage comes from the Apostle Peter's letter to Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And they were trying to figure out who they were because Christianity had begun as a Jewish sect. Jesus was a Jew, after all. But after the resurrection, when the disciples uh, began claiming that Jesus was the Son of God, that, well, that sort of didn't sit too well within the Jewish understanding of monotheism. And moreover, Christians were beginning to experience persecution from outside of their faith and even to the point of death. And it seemed like some of them weren't ready for it. Uh, Peter addresses that in his letter. And uh, we shouldn't be too hard on them because, to be honest, how many of us really prepare for difficulty or suffering? How many of us are ready for it when it comes? I don't know about you, but sometimes if I'm being honest in my pursuit of the way of the gospel, I will go as far as is comfortable. Uh, Maybe a step or two beyond that, but certainly not to the point where I give whatever it takes. I surrender all is a little much. I surrender a little is more like it. I give you everything. I give you some. It's probably closer to the truth. Love your enemy. Well, can I love them and yet sort of despise them at the same time? That's not because we don't want to live the fullest life that God has for us. I mean, who wouldn't want that? But often we can only get so far so fast. Often we're only willing to change a certain amount at a time. Often we're only able to handle that. And so perhaps for us today, I hope we can hear what Peter was trying to say to the church in the first century and realize that the ways those same words may encourage or challenge us here in the 21st century and how we live our lives and how we together live this life as the church. So the first point I want to make is the church is a worshiping community. Church is a worshiping community. And to be more specific, we come together to order our lives around Jesus, to remember the promises of God and the work of Christ. Christ City Church. Christ City Church. We worship, we give worth to, that's what worship means, we give worth to God first and foremost. So here's the thing, we're all worshiping something, and we're always worshiping something. We're all worshiping something, and we're always worshiping something. The idols of our day may not be handmade shrines or statues, but they may be um, a bursting bank account or selfish satisfaction of physical urges or the tight-fisted acquiring of control. Everything we do and everything in our lives tells us what we worship and how we worship. Let me give a simple example uh, from my own life. Recently, I've been sort of in and out of a bit of a rut. And what that rut looks like is that when I wake up, I grab my phone, and I check my email, and I check to see if the Seattle Mariners have won, because they're in the chase for a playoff place, and I check social media, and I may open up words with friends. And then after that, I may make a cup of tea, and get on my laptop, and start working. And that's a rut for me, because that's not how I want to start my day. And that says something about what I'm worshiping, doesn't it? Of course, it's mostly justifiable. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. And, uh, you know, when you you open up social media and you see that little red uh, balloon, you get a little hit of dopamine because people are interacting with your your stuff. And it's nice to start the day with a good feeling. And um, the Seattle Mariners haven't been on the playoffs for 16 years. They have the longest playoff drought in the major leagues. Uh, And... uh, 
you know, I have to get so many points on Words with Friends each week to get that weekly badge. <laughs> so more or less justifiable. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying by what I'm doing? You see what I'm worshiping? I'm giving worth to my own productivity. I'm giving worth to my own good feelings. I'm giving worth to my own need for entertainment and my own anxieties about the work before me. And yet, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, and you may have heard me quote this before because I have always needed this reminder, for Christians, the beginning of the day should not be burdened and oppressed with besetting concerns for the day's work. At the threshold of the new day stands the Lord who made it. All the darkness and distraction of the dreams of night retreat before the clear light of Jesus Christ and his awakening word. All unrest, all impurity, all care and anxiety flee before him. And therefore, at the beginning of the day, let all distraction and empty talk be silenced. And let the first thought and the first word belong to him to whom our whole life belongs. When I have my priorities right, my first thought of the day, the first offering of my time when I wake up, and my last thought of the day, the last offering of my time before I go to sleep, also goes to God. And that's not just because I, you know, I feel better about my day if I do that, or not even just because I feel more centered, or, but because it's an act of worship. It, it says something about who and what I'm prioritizing, who and what I'm giving worth to. Our habits, our practices, our rhythms as individuals, they tell us what we as individuals prioritize and what we give worth to. And as a community, our habits, our practices, and our rhythms tell us what we as a community prioritize and give worth to. And so let's just consider some of the practices we have as a church. We've cultivated, we've developed, we take communion every week to remind ourselves of the centrality of what Christ has done. And also to remind ourselves of who we are. We have a time of corporate confession so that we can come together as a body to acknowledge the ways we've fallen short or to profess the things we desire in common. Every month we have a potluck community lunch to provide a space of welcome for those who are new and to remember that relationships aren't cultivated just by sharing the same space every week, but by engaging with one another, by providing for one another. And we meet in small groups because it's a midweek opportunity and a more manageable size to walk with others as they figure out how God and their faith play into their lives and to allow them to do the same for us. With every act of remembering and retelling and serving and giving, we're saying something about what we worship. We are a community that worships the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship a God who is community. We worship a God who is in relationship. We worship a God who is most clearly revealed in Jesus Christ, the God who gave himself up to death so that we might have life. And what that means is, to quote Ruth Haley Barton, Christian community is not and never can be about us. Christian community is not and can never, never can be about us. It's first and foremost about God. And when we worship, we are, as Peter writes, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in biblical times, sacrifices to God involve real animals, lambs and bulls and pigeons. And if you read the Old Testament instructions about sacrifices, you, won't, you realize there was blood everywhere. Okay? It was messy. 
and it was costly. Animals were an asset, after all, and food if need be. Yet even those who didn't have much were required, were called upon to make sacrifices because sacrifices were an act of worship. They were a way of saying, I think you, God, are worth more to me than my hunger. I think you, God, are worth more than owning a lot of things. I think you, God, are the one whose opinion matters most to me. I think you, God, are the one who matters most, period. And, in, and God and Jesus said, there's no more need for blood sacrifices. I've paid the price. You no longer need to prove your love for me by slaughtering animals, but now, now I'm asking for your heart. Now I'm asking for your life, for your inner being that reveals itself in your outward behavior. And so God is actually asking for more now. God is asking for our involvement, for our engagement, for ourselves and our souls. As the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the church in Rome, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. I think that covers most of everything. Place it before God as an offering. This is the kind of sacrifice God is looking for. This is the kind of worship God is looking for. And so let me ask you, what does your life, your habits, your rhythms, your practices say about what you're worshiping? What does your life say about what you're worshiping? And what does your life as part of this community say about how you worship God? I just want you to think about that. We are a worshiping community. We're always worshiping, and we're always worshiping something. So we are a worshiping community. We're also a witnessing community. <clears throat> we're a witnessing community. Now, if you grew up in a more conservative Christian culture like I did, you may hear the word witness and, and think of evangelism, <clears throat> excuse me, or sharing your testimony or handing out tracts on the street, and those things certainly aren't precluded from what it means to witness. But let's try to start from another point with the dictionary definition, which is to give or serve as evidence of. To give or serve as evidence of. This is what Peter writes. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That you may give and serve as evidence of the redemptive work of God. That you may give and serve as evidence of the saving work of Jesus. That you may give and serve as evidence of the gracious life of the Spirit. Or to use the language of our church, we are storytellers sharing the greatest story of all in a thousand ways. We've talked before about how the church is a sign and a foretaste. A sign and a foretaste of the kingdom of God. As we witness, we are a sign. We are pointing to Jesus. We're pointing to the one who called us from darkness into light. We bear witness to the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ in every life and in every sphere of life by what we say, by what we do, by how we live. And that's true as individuals and that's true for us together as a community. And we bear that witness to two audiences. First, we bear that witness to others. Many years ago, when I was uh, fresh out of college and trying to figure out what my faith looked like uh, beyond what I had inherited from my family, one of the questions I was wrestling with was, what's the purpose of church? What's the purpose 
of the church. See, I'd grown up in a, a Southern Baptist church in Hong Kong. I had um, gone to Sunday school every week. I participated in youth group and youth choir. Uh, one of the added bonuses for me growing up in Hong Kong was that I got to go to dim sum almost every Sunday after church, <laughs> and someone else footed the bill. <laughs> I learned the Bible there. I, I learned how to sing harmonies out of hymnals. I learned of the generosity of those in the church to one another. But as a young adult, I remember wondering if church was just a place for Christians to get away from non-Christians for a while. You know, a spot to recharge one's spiritual batteries before going back out into a world completely devoid of God. And then I came across this quote. The church doesn't exist for itself. It exists to serve the world. It is not ultimately about the church. It's, all about, it's about all the people God wants to bless through the church. When the church loses sight of this, it loses its heart. This is especially true today in the world we live in where so many people are hostile to the church, many for good reason. We reclaim the church as a blessing machine. I like that, a blessing machine. Why blame the dark for being dark? It is far more helpful to ask why the light isn't as bright as it could be. We do not exist for ourselves. We are not an exclusive membership community with gold package privileges for those on the inside. If that's why you're here, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We are a radically inclusive community, ever and always looking out for those who are in need of the welcome and love of God. We bear witness to those who are outside the community of faith. We invite those who haven't heard, and we do that not just with our actions, well, not just with our words, but with our actions too. One aspect is, of this is what Matthew talked about last week. Christ City Church. We serve our city. We seek the renewal of our city. We partner with other churches and other organizations to see the welfare of our city uh, engaged with. We participated last week with uh, Minor Elementary's Beautification Day because we're a witnessing community. We're saying God has a vision for this place, a vision that predates us and will continue long after we're gone. And God was at work in this place long before we showed up, and God will continue to be at work in this place long after we're gone. But while we're here, while we're here, we want to follow the Spirit and the work of making all things new. While we're here, while we have breath in our lungs and our feet are on this ground, we want to bear witness to, we want to point to the kingdom of God. What life looks like when a good and loving God of grace and peace is in charge. And so when you go to work, for example, you're bearing witness to Christ and His kingdom as we scatter to tell the gospel. That doesn't mean you have to find a way to slide a Bible reference into every conversation or every email or constantly be leaving invitation cards to come get a folks to come to church. Uh, I mean, God might ask you to do that, but he's probably more concerned with how you respond in the face of con conflict or adversity or how you treat the person who rubs you the wrong way. You may be the only Bible people ever read. You may be the only Bible people ever read. And so how you live is a sign that points to the God you claim to believe in. This week I saw this quote from uh, author Jen Hatmaker. She said, people may hate us because of Jesus. People should never hate Jesus because of us. People may hate us because of Jesus. Blessed are you, blessed are you when people persecute you in my name. 
But people should never hate Jesus because of us. And so to those outside the community, for those outside of our church, to those who may never set foot in this school on a Sunday morning, what kind of God are we bearing witness to? An anxious God? A petty God? A tribal God? Or a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, the marginalized, a God who lifts up the poor, restores the brokenhearted, who destroys the yoke of injustice, a God who invites everyone to the table and who loves his enemies even to the point of dying on their behalf. See, in order to show that God to the world, we may just have to be like that God. We may just have to do those same things. And so what kind of gospel, what kind of good news are we giving and serving as evidence of, as a community that witnesses to others? The second audience we bear witness to, though, is each other. We bear, we bear witness to each other. As Bonhoeffer would say, the goal of all Christian community is that we meet, they meet each other, they meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. We meet each other as bringers of the message of salvation. We remind one another of the things we so easily forget, that God is good, that Jesus is gracious, that the Spirit is, is doing a work of transformation in us, even when we feel like we've taken four steps back. We remind one another of the good news of Jesus Christ, especially in those moments when we lose focus or when we got caught up on other things or when the evidence in front of us seems to point to the contrary. And again, this may be with our words. It may be with an encouragement or a greeting. It may be with the songs that we sing that embed gospel truths in our brains. Or it might be with our actions. It might be with a hug or a handshake. It might be when we perform any number of small, indiscriminate acts of kindness. But maybe there's even more to bearing witness to each other than that. I was listening to a sermon a couple of days ago um, by our friend Gideon Tsang, who pastors Vox Vignette in Austin. And uh, he suggested that community can be a mirror to us. Community can serve as a mirror to us so that we can see what needs healing. And so the question is, what if it's not just that we remind each other of the things we forget, but that we also help each other see things we could never see on our own so that we can allow God to heal and transform those parts of us. A few months ago, I talked about sin, and I shared a model that psychologists use for explaining a person's growth in competence. And for those of you who are here, you may remember that the first stage of this is actually unconscious incompetence. That is, you don't know what you don't know. And stage two is conscious incompetence. That is, you know what you don't know. And what if the way you get from stage one to stage two is through community? Through the mirroring of another person telling you or showing you something you didn't realize. Peter would have known about that firsthand. Here's what happened. So the good news is for all people. It's always been for all people. God has always intended to bless all of his creation. But we humans have always preferred God to bless our part of creation. Um, we've always preferred God to bless us and to curse our enemies. We tend to be kind of tribal and selfish that way. And yet when Jesus came along, he reiterated that the good news is for all people. And he showed it by eating with all people, Jew and Gentile, male and female, fundamentalist and liberal, clean and unclean, 
And he instructed his followers to do the same, including Peter. In the book of Acts, he said, if God says it's okay, it's okay. And so Peter started eating with non-Jews, something that would have been a radical life change for him. And then the conservative fundamentalists show up, and they're pushing the old way of Jewish purity. And Peter got spooked. He stopped hanging out with non-Jews, and he started falling back into old exclusionary tribal ways. And because Peter, a leader in the church, did it, so did all the other Jews in the church. And this is what Paul writes in Galatians 2. When Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. When I saw that they, Peter, and the other Jews in the church were not maintaining a steady, straight course according to the message, the gospel, the good news, the way of Jesus, I spoke up to Peter in front of, all, in front of them all. Uh, Gideon referenced this icon of Peter and Paul hugging. Uh, Paul is the bald one. And uh, Gideon says he imagines Paul leaning in and giving Peter a hug and whispering, Stop being racist. <laughs> I imagine Paul was probably le- actually less subtle than that. Um, Paul wasn't particularly afraid of conflict. He wasn't afraid to say, that's not the way of the gospel. That's not the way of Jesus. Being confronted with ourselves and with what we didn't see is never comfortable. Having our shortcomings pointed out, even when it's done lovingly, is hard. Our natural inclination, my natural inclination, is to become defensive or or to point out You know, what's wrong with the other person? As if somehow that makes their observation moot. But what if God places us in churches and forms us in communities because it is only through other people that we can be made aware of what's going on in ourselves? And if that's the case, how can you allow others to be bringers of the message of salvation to you? Whether it's encouragement or challenge. Let me say that again. What if God places us in churches, forms us in communities, because it is only through other people that we are made aware of what's really going on with ourselves? And if that's the case, how can you allow others to be bringers of the message of salvation to you? The church is a witnessing community, whether it's encouragement or challenge. We give and we serve as evidence of the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom to others and to one another. Third and finally, the church is a community on the way. And I mean that with both a small w and a big w, capital W. Being a community on the way, small w means that we are a community in progress, community in process. We are those who are becoming. We are those who are being formed and transformed. We are those who are learning and relearning how to position ourselves and our souls so that the Spirit of God can make us more like Jesus. We are not yet who we will be. We are not yet who we will be. And that is a constant nudging of God. It's the whispering of the Spirit. Let us become who we were made to be. Let us be made whole. 
Now, the other way of looking at being a community in progress, the, uh, the pessimist's way of looking at being a community in progress is that we're imperfect. We're imperfect. We all know that no church is perfect, at least in our heads. And yet how many of us still look at the church through the lens of a consumer? Not, not deliberately, not intentionally, not consciously, but even subconsciously, making our judgments by asking the question, well, what am I getting out of this? Jean Vanier, the founder of the large community, he meant no words when he said, stop wasting time running after the perfect community. Live your life fully in your community today. This is how we say it at Christ City Church. Church isn't a place for the perfect or pristine, but for the hungry, hurting, and hopeful. To use Peter's image, we are like living stones, Christians, little Christs, reflecting the living stone, Christ himself. And together we are being built. That's the language that Peter uses. We are being built into a spiritual temple, the dwelling place of the divine community. Being a community on the way, a community in progress, requires what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. And perhaps I would use instead the word stubbornness. But not stubbornness in the sense of an imposition of one's own will. Rather, let me use the words of one of my seminary professors, David Augsburger, who wrote that perhaps the spirit is found instead in a stubborn attentiveness. Stubborn attentiveness to Christ and to Christ in the other. Which then leads to a stubborn vulnerability in revealing our struggles and acknowledging our need for help. Which then leads to a stubborn inwardness, a courageous sharing of what is precious and valued to us which then leads to a stubborn openness to difference as we seek a unity that accepts and integrates discord and conflict rather than trying to do away with them, which then leads to a stubborn support and confrontation for growth because healing and maturation are available to all, which finally leads to a stubborn inclusiveness of enemy and friend, acknowledging that every space is one for the work of the Spirit. Good news for all, because we all need to hear it every day, every step on the way, on our way toward Christ's likeness. And that part, that last part is important to remember as well. We aren't just journeying together because it's too lonely or scary to do life on our own. Jesus said, I am the way, big W. We are on our way and we are on the way. We live our lives in and through Christ. We are becoming all that God made us to be. We are learning to live as Jesus would if he were in our place. And as a community, we are learning to be the body of Christ. We are learning to be the physical representation of Jesus on this earth, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, as we individually and we as a body are filled with the Spirit of God. In the convicting words of Teresa of Avila, Christ has no body now but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. That's true for us as individuals, as those who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, and that's true for us as a community. We are the body of Christ. That's what Paul writes. He would also say that we are Christ's ambassadors representatives of the kingdom and that's true when we scatter it's true when we go out from this place 
and that's true in how we do life here together. When we disagree on things, does the way we deal with those disagreements reflect Christ? When we hear things that are unfounded rumor or gossip, do we engage in it, or do we strive for gracious truth-telling? If someone were to look at how we love one another, would they know that we are Jesus' disciples? And so, to take a step back, let me ask you this. How do you see the church? This body of which you are a part. How do you see yourself as a part of this body? Or are you not? Does anything need to change? Perhaps in perspective, perhaps in participation. In the King James Version of this passage, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. A peculiar people. I like that. We are a peculiar people made in the image of a peculiar God. Church is the body of Christ, the flesh and blood embodiment of the community of the Trinity. And we are growing in the likeness of our peculiar, enemy-loving, others-serving, self-sacrificing Lord. This morning in the devotional that I read, there's this prayer that just was perfect for for today, and so as the band comes up, I want to read this. I want to ask you to join me in prayer. Steadfast God, perhaps one of the greatest mysteries is why you continue to entrust the work of your kingdom into our clumsy hands. But we are forever grateful that you do not want to change the world without us. May we become the church you dream of. May we become the church you dream of. That's our prayer, God. And we pray it in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.